Welcome to the Burning Zone. I'm Coleman Luck. This is the start of a new format for the podcast for us. I have a new co-host, Coleman Luck III, so welcome to you. Thank you. Just to be clear, I'm officially Coleman Luck Jr. There isn't a, a missing generation. No, there's not. In our new format, we're going to be discussing many strange and controversial subjects. Well, that sounds strange right there. Right <laughs> <away>. <laughs> we're going to try to do this with some depth. Some of the areas we're going to be getting into include, uh, for me, I've got an episode coming up on dreaming, what the Bible says about dreams. Science has basically decided that dreams are just data dumps from our day. Yeah, well, my, my, most of my dreams really are sort of data dumps. I mean, uh, they're not much to talk about, but you're, you have, you've had some other experiences. I certainly have have. So we're going to be getting into what the Bible says about dreams and what the actual nature of dreams may be. Well, I, I want to get us into the discussion of the Salem witch trials. I have done quite a bit of study about that. I consider that to be one of the most important periods of early American history. It has had a tremendous influence on our entire culture in many ways. There's been a ton of writing about it. I'm not sure that we have a clear view even yet uh, so we want to talk about that, especially men like Cotton Mather, who is, his memory has been vilified by various people, writers. Uh, I'm not sure we've had a really clear idea of him either. So we're going to talk about that period and what was really going on there. I think that should be interesting to do. I'm looking forward to that. And it certainly has been disseminated widely in the in entertainment. You even had a, a TV show on Netflix called Salem that dealt with that very issue. And I'm sure that our, our understanding of it and what we're going to discuss here is going to be very different from anything you've heard about it before. Absolutely right. Uh, I'm interested, too, in um, in things like a near-death and out-of-body experiences. We've done a lot of study in that area. I want to focus one of our discussions on a particular man. Uh, this is one of the most fascinating and weird stories that I've ever read. It comes out of Hollywood. This is a man who was a tremendously successful screenwriter back in the 1920s. He's been entirely forgotten. But if you looked up his IMDb, you would see him there. This man had a near-death, or not a near-death, but out-of-body experience that was very profound. He wrote about it in a national magazine. His experience became the first really strong national exposure of this entire area. So he's extremely important. After he had this experience and wrote about it, became extremely successful and well-known, he then did some of the most terrible things you can imagine. And we want to talk about what he did afterward as well, because it's very important in thinking about the message that comes from these kind of experiences. I'm looking forward to talking about uh, out-of-body experiences, especially I've done a, a, an extensive amount of research in that area because I've had some unusual experiences there myself. So you'll want to tune in for that one. It will be some things you've never heard before, that's for sure. And transhumanism. You know, we, uh, we've done a lot of study and reading in that area, and there are a lot of people who don't really have an understanding of what transhuman is, if transhumanism is. They don't really understand the nature of the sciences that are associated with it. They really think it's just science fiction. It isn't. And it's something that is uh, very important for us to understand because it's going to impact 
our near future. It really already is. It, it is impacting us now, absolutely, completely impacting us now. Some of my favorite areas that we're going to be getting into include Uparts and ancient archaeology. I love Uparts. I just have to Out-of-place yeah. artifacts. I love those, and I, I've always wanted to own one, but <laughs> I, I, I doubt that I ever will. They are fascinating. Yes, uh, and, and so wonderful to discuss and so interesting. Uh, so we're, we'll, you know... Uh, ancient... you know the whole history of the human race suddenly changes. You know, when you start... Uh, Looking at Uparts, you the, all of our assumptions about ancient history just go straight up, right in out smoke. the window. Uh, well, we'll, you know, we'll, so we'll be looking at that. We'll be examining the ancient alien aspect of archaeology to some degree or another. That's incredibly popular right now. But we'll also be getting into aliens in particular, as well as the contemporary phenomenon of UFOs and abductions. Yes, and that is uh, that relates in a strange way to near-death experiences as well. And transhumanism. Yes, it does. There are fascinating things like uh, these giant furry monsters that wander around in the we woods. We can't forget Bigfoot. We can't. And that is important. Plus, the whole, the mythology of the underground world that has been written about the Shaver mysteries, and yes, and there are things that that are very odd about that. We need to talk about them, and all of this we're going to be doing in a weird kind of way. You may discover from a biblical perspective. Absolutely, you're going to discover that the Bible is far more unusual than you may have ever thought. And it may speak, in fact, I think it does speak to many of these issues and gives a clarity about them in ways that you don't find anywhere else. So be prepared to hear things on this podcast that you certainly will never hear in any Bible study, church, or from pretty much almost any Christian teacher. This is going to be a journey uh, that we are going to take together, and I think you'll enjoy it. Why don't we start with supernatural healing? Sounds good to me. There's something mysterious buried in ancient history, and I think it points towards the future. Question, how in the world did Christianity take over the Roman Empire? We know in 312 AD that Constantine became a Christian and he became emperor. From that point on, Christianity was the religion of the state. But by the time Constantine appeared, millions and millions of Romans had already become Christians. The mystery is, how did this happen, and what does it mean for the future? Well, we know how Christianity spread from the days of Jesus to the end of the lives of his apostles. Let's call that about 100 AD. The apostles went on long missionary excursions to far-off places in the world. For instance, the apostle Thomas went all the way to India. Paul planted the message throughout Asia Minor of the Roman Empire, and he may have gone all the way to Spain. But after the apostles were dead, what happened over the next 200 years before Constantine? Yale history professor Ramsey McMullen asked that question and came up with some strange answers in his book, Christianizing the Roman Empire. To get those answers, he did massive research in primary sources. So what do we know? After the apostles, there were almost no great missionary excursions. One reason for this is because Christians faced periods of brutal persecution, Even when they weren't persecuted, they were deeply misunderstood and faced discrimination. They were called atheists because they didn't worship the Roman gods. All sorts of lies were told about what went on in their meetings. Through this period, Christianity was not a religion of the wealthy elite. Many Christians were poor, and very many were slaves. They were tradespeople and craftspeople. In Roman cities, people who weren't wealthy lived stacked on top of each other in small rooms. Many worked where they lived. During these 200 years, Christianity spread with tremendous power as little people shared their faith with those around them. But what was the draw? 
Why would people want to be involved in a religion that was looked down upon and at various times might get you killed? Professor McMullen comes to some startling conclusions. It grew because of strange power. Diseases of all sorts were rampant in Roman cities. Poor people suffered greatly and they had no recourse for help that worked until Christians appeared. It was discovered that if Christians prayed for you and laid hands on you, there was a good chance you might get healed. Just as poor sick people had flocked to Jesus for healing, they flocked to his followers. Humans are not stupid. We know when we feel sick and when we feel well. Needless to say, if you had been very ill and you weren't anymore after someone prayed for you, that would be rather strong proof that their God was real. But that wasn't all. Professor McMullen points to something else. Many people in the Roman world suffered from demon possession. That belief is considered primitive in our so-called rational scientific world. In a future episode, we're going to talk much more about what is called evil spirit possession. But right now, suffice it to say that many in Roman cities were tormented and could find no relief in the spells and magical charms of pagan healers. But according to Professor McMullen, The historical record indicates that when Christians prayed for these tormented people, they were delivered. From his massive study, Professor McMullen wrote that, in spite of persecution, for 200 years Christianity spread to the point of filling the Roman world with believers, largely because of what might be called power encounters. This goes against the belief of many Western Christians today, who have been deeply influenced by Western rationalism. They have been taught to believe that such supernatural gifts ended with the apostles. What might all of this tell us about the future, about the dark days that are ahead? First, for the past 100 years, we have been living in a bubble where our wonderful medical science has really worked to cure and extend our lives. But the power of our antibiotics is fading away. When a new virus appears, it can take a long time to develop a vaccine. There are new technologies that deal with viral disease that are being researched, but they aren't here yet. Virologists warn us that we are long overdue for a worldwide pandemic. The last real one came in March of 1918 and burned through the world until June of 1920. It's estimated that 500 million people, one-third of the world's population at the time, became infected. It spread even to the Arctic. Between 50 and 100 million people died. Right now the world population is at 7.5 billion. If a pandemic struck with the same mortality rate today, hundreds of millions of people would die. We should not say if, but when the next pandemic strikes. Jesus specifically predicted in Matthew 24, 7, that the days of the end would be preceded by many terrible events. One category of those events will be pestilence. That's an old word which means disease that causes many people to die. When pandemics sweep the world, they transform human society, and it's not for the better. Terror, hopelessness, and desperation take control. Often out of great sorrow come bitterness and rage. In past pandemics, faith in God has been deeply shaken and destroyed in many of those who came out alive. We can be certain of one thing. As we look towards such a disaster in the days of the end, the powers of darkness and evil will use it as an opportunity to take control. How will they do it? Jesus predicted that many false Christs would arise and people will flock to them. Why? Why did people flock to Jesus when he walked in this world? They were physically sick and needed healing. I think we can be certain that in the days of the end, days of death, disease, and desperation, the powers of darkness will counterfeit all the miracles that Jesus and his followers have done, especially 
supernatural healing. And they will be given real power to heal. With it, they will fool people into believing that they are servants of God. So we need to have a clear understanding about supernatural healing. How do we know where it's coming from? The test is not simply, does it work? Does it make you well? There's much more to it than that. So let's tell a story. In 1528, a small collection of Spanish galleons arrived off the coast of Florida. The ships were full of professional soldiers, conquistadors. Second in command was a man named Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca. His surname means head of the cow. It's not a name I would want, but to him it was an honor. The king of Spain had conferred it on one of his ancestors for bravery in battle. The goal of this military expedition was to establish a Christian colony that would provide riches for the monarchs in Spain. In the process, for the soldiers, it would be fine if they got rich themselves. These were hard men, seasoned war veterans, expecting danger and difficulty. Well, they found it. The ships landed in what is now Tampa Bay. They got there purely by accident. The men who were supposed to be skilled pilots had no idea where they were or where they were going. Like many military leaders, the man actually in charge of this expedition was not entirely competent. He decided that most of the force should go on foot up the coast. The ships would meet them on the Florida Panhandle. Exactly where that would be, they had no idea, but that was the plan. So the soldiers disembarked, and the ships sailed away, never to be seen again. Of course, in that day, there were no retirement communities or miles of fast food joints on the Florida Gulf Coast. Just swamps, rivers, bogs, mosquitoes, disease, and very unfriendly tribes. The men slogged their way through it with no maps. Their guides didn't know where they were going. The miserable journey took months, and along the way, many of them died. When they reached the Panhandle, they were deep inland, starving and under constant attack by angry locals. Finally, they made it back to the Gulf Coast, where more of them died. They knew they had to escape this hellish land, and it was clear that the ships weren't coming. Their only hope was to get to New Spain on their own. That's what they called Mexico. One of the men on this expedition was a carpenter. Under his direction, they cut down trees and built barge rafts. This took several months. During this time, they were constantly starving, bitten by millions of mosquitoes, and fighting off tribal attacks. They ate the few horses they had left. Finally, after months of preparation, they shoved off into the gulf. Of course, they had little food and almost no drinkable water. They tried to store water in horse hides, but the hides rotted. This nightmarish trip across the gulf took months. There were storms and the barges got separated. Ultimately, every single man on the expedition died except for four. Cabeza de Vaca's barge finally came to shore, probably on what is now Galveston Island in Texas. The men were in terrible shape, starving and exhausted. Well, Galveston Island was not where they wanted to be. They weren't in New Spain yet, and they knew it. They needed to get back out into the gulf, but their barge got stuck on the sand. They had to push it off. So to keep their clothes dry, they stripped naked. Their clothes and their weapons were on the barge. When they started to push it off the sand, suddenly a giant wave came and swept it out to sea. They were left standing in the ocean, stark naked. Watching them on shore was a large and very unfriendly Indian tribe. These people were totally naked and starving as well, but they had weapons. So the great conquistadors had arrived in Texas. No clothes, no weapons, no way to defend themselves. The tribe took them prisoner, and the conquerors became slaves. Over several years that followed, all the things the Spanish were doing to the people of the New World were done to them. They were beaten, 
They were starved and forced to do hard labor. They slept naked without shelter in the cold and the heat. Here is an ugly reality. All of these men were Roman Catholic Christians. One of the goals of the Spanish conquest of the New World was to plant Christianity among the tribes. This was done with brutality, raping, pillaging, and forcing people to be baptized, which is the exact opposite from the way Jesus wanted it done. Well, in their awful condition, Cabeza de Baca and his friends couldn't do it in the typical Spanish manner. They didn't know it, but in their suffering they were becoming like Jesus Christ himself, who long ago was beaten and hung naked on a cross. The slavery of these men went on for several years. For years they lived naked, starved, brutalized, and constantly afraid that the tribes were going to murder them. When things couldn't get any worse, they did. Suddenly the tribe was stricken with disease. People were dying. The leaders came to them and said, You are from far away. You know things. You heal us. And do it now or we will kill you. I'm sure their response was, This is insane. What can we do? We're soldiers, not doctors. But if we don't do something, we're dead. In their desperation, there was one thing they could do. They could pray. So they prayed. They laid hands on the sick, made the sign of the cross, and breathed on them in Jesus' name. Now doesn't that sound foolish? What a waste of time. Now we come to the truly strange part of the story. All of the people they prayed for were healed. Needless to say, the word got out. Poor sick people began to flock to them from all over. They prayed, they kept on praying, and the sick kept on being healed. I don't have to tell you that their status among the tribes changed radically. They weren't slaves anymore. They were honored. But they were still half-starving and naked, just like everybody else, and they longed to get home. The only way to get home was to get to New Spain, but not by water. They'd had enough of that. It would have to be over land. How far was it? They literally had no idea. They didn't know that they would have to walk across all of Texas and New Mexico and down through Arizona. So Cabeza de Vaca and his friends began one of the most amazing journeys of history. Totally naked, with no maps, no weapons, no guides, and almost no food or water, they started wandering through this new world. Wandering? No, I think they were being guided by an unseen hand. Do you know what those men did? They healed their way across the southwest. The first Europeans ever to be there were healers. Often thousands of tribal people followed them. Runners would stream ahead. They would enter villages and the sick were waiting for them. The strict conquerors from Spain had become the healers from heaven. In the process, they carried the message of Jesus Christ and his love to people who had never heard his name. In one tribe, they asked the leaders who they worshipped. They replied that they worshipped a man in heaven, but they didn't know who he was. Cabeza de Baca and his friends told them. Their journey through the southwest was horrific. Many times they went for days without food or water. People from one tribe would lead them to the next, suffering deprivation with them along the way. They were loved, and because they had the power to heal, they were feared. Cabeza de Baca and his friends never took advantage of that power. When they were given gifts, they gave them away to people in need. Finally, they made it into northern Mexico. There they met the Spaniards, their countrymen, who were burning, pillaging, and enslaving the tribes. Cabeza de Baca tried to stop them. He tried to make them treat the native people with kindness. His own people hated him for it. 
Only a few of the Spaniards listened to him and changed their ways. Most did not. Even worse, these evil men did their best to get the tribes who were loyal to Cabeza de Baca to turn against him by telling them that he was just like they were. The reply they got from the tribal leaders was amazing. They said to the Spaniards, You came to us with horses and weapons. You attacked us, taking what we have and making us your slaves. These men came naked with nothing just like us, and they healed our sick. They gave back everything that was given to them. No, they are not the same as you. Cabeza de Vaca went back to Spain and wrote a military report for the king. What was the heart of that message? Please, your majesty, treat the tribes with kindness. They are so poor. They have nothing. They are in so much need. They are ready to hear about the love of God. Kindness is the only way to victory. In this, we know Cabeza de Vaca failed, but he and his friends, rough soldiers who had suffered so much, had planted the message of Jesus like seeds in a wilderness. And God had been with them, the God who heals. How do we know about this story? We have the report that Cabeza de Vaca wrote to the king. It has been translated and published and is available to you to read. In that report, he gives detailed information about the land and the people. It is of tremendous historical importance because it is the first such report of a European who traveled through the Southwest. Yet rarely do you hear it mentioned. Why? To tell that story truthfully, you must tell the supernatural power of God. Many people, including many historians today, don't want to hear that. So what are we to make of this supernatural healing? Now there are many people, including many Christians who are skeptics, They might join atheists and materialists in saying that the healings of Cabeza de Vaca were purely natural, what's called the placebo effect. It goes like this. The tribal people were desperate. They wanted to believe the Spaniards could heal them, so their bodies responded to that intense belief and made them well. It had nothing to do with God and prayer at all. So let's confront that. There have been striking cases that would seem to support the placebo hypothesis regarding the healings of Cabeza de Vaca. One of the most famous of them took place in Long Beach, California in the late 1950s, and it is very well documented. At that time, there was a cancer patient who is called in the literature Mr. Wright. This man was dying from advanced cancer in his lymph nodes. Tumors the size of oranges were all over his chest, neck, groin, and abdomen. His spleen and liver were massively swollen, and the doctors reported that between 30 and 60 ounces of fluid had to be sucked out of his chest every other day just so he could breathe. Now, this guy was dying. It was obvious to everyone that he wouldn't live much longer. Then something happened. Mr. Wright got information that filled him with hope. His own cancer specialist was part of a team that was testing a new cancer drug called cribiazin. Initial tests had been very promising. He pleaded with his doctor and convinced him to give him the drug. The specialist, named Dr. Philip West, thought, What's there to lose? I mean, the man is going to be dead in weeks anyway. Let's let him have what he wants. So on a Friday afternoon, he gave Mr. Wright an injection of cribiazin. What happened was amazing. On Monday morning, Dr. West came into the hospital and found his dying patient up and around, walking the corridors and joking with everyone. When West checked him, he couldn't believe what he was seeing. The huge tumors were dissolving away. 
Over the next 10 days, Mr. Wright received more treatments of cribiazin until almost all signs of cancer were gone. They discharged him and he went back to his normal life. Well, a couple of months later, something terrible happened. Mr. Wright read a newspaper account about cribiazin. It reported the next stage of research. Cribiazin wasn't proving effective in the treatment of cancer. Almost immediately after reading this, the tumors came back, and Mr. Wright went back to see Dr. West. The doctor was horrified by the almost instantaneous return of the cancer, so he decided to do something that was unethical. He decided to lie. First, he told Wright that the news reports were not correct. Cribiazin was effective in curing cancer. The reason the cancer had returned was because the batch they had used had been sitting around in a pharmacy and had lost most of its strength. But West assured his patient that the hospital had just received new, super-refined, double-strength cribiazin. He suggested that they start a new regimen of injections. Needless to say, Mr. Wright agreed. So they started the treatments. Mr. Wright received injections of distilled water that he thought was cribiazin. The results were just as amazing as they had been with the actual drug. The tumors disappeared. A few days later, Mr. Wright left the hospital symptom-free. Everything went well for several months. Then there was another news report, this one from the American Medical Association. The final test results were in, and they were conclusive. Cribiazin was worthless, totally ineffective in curing cancer. A few days after reading that report, a very distraught Mr. Wright was readmitted to the hospital. Two days later, he died of cancer. What is going on with our brains? This is far from the only example of the placebo effect. Truly believing that something is going to happen can make it actually happen in our bodies when there is no other operative agent than belief. But we want to suggest to you that we've named it wrong. It isn't the placebo effect, it is the faith effect. Placed within us is a tremendous power called faith. It can do amazing things in our lives, but it works in two ways. It can heal you as it did Mr. Wright for a period of time, or it can kill you. In the future, we're going to look at some primitive cultures that believe in curses. When someone in that culture discovers he's been cursed by a witch or shaman, he weakens and dies. Here's a question. Could it be possible that God has placed the faith effect in us as part of his gift of free will? Now we can use our free will, our free choices, for good or bad, can't we? The same is true for the faith effect. It can make us strong or it can kill us. It can guide us toward life or toward destruction. And you are using the faith effect one way or the other every single day that you live. Faith is at the heart of the entire message of the Bible. It is the heart of Jesus' life and teaching. The word appears 243 times in the New Testament. Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Faith is not an emotion. It is a choice, an act of the will. Very often that choice is made when there are powerful reasons not to have faith, which is logical. There's no need for faith when everything is operating consistently and predictably. It's when the unpredictable happens, when a need appears for which there are no adequate human resources that faith comes into play. Or it doesn't. A desperate need and desperate faith lead to actions. The most important of those actions is seeking God. 
The desperate need may not be for physical healing. It may come when we get a clear view of ourselves and how lost we are. We cry out to Him to save us, believing that He will. The writer of Hebrews promises that God will reward those who diligently seek Him. How much faith do you need? False teachers tell us that we need a ton of faith, and if you don't have enough, whatever that is, nothing good will come to you. That's the opposite of what Jesus taught. He said in Matthew 17:20, For assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. He said those words in the context of casting out a demon and bringing spiritual and physical healing to a person who was suffering. He said it to those who were his true disciples, whose lives were committed to him. He was talking about accomplishing the work of the kingdom of heaven in this world, carrying out the Great Commission, not trusting God for a new car or a big bank account. God works through the faith of people. Think for a minute, what if Cabeza de Vaca and his friends had not had enough faith to pray for those suffering and dying people? They didn't know what was going to happen the first time they did it, but they had enough faith to try. What if they had said, Hey, sorry, we're not doctors. We can't help you. No one would have been healed. They would not have been freed from their slavery. Very likely, they would have died where they were. We wouldn't have a record of their amazing journey. Most of all, thousands of people would never have heard about Jesus. We don't know how many people were healed by the prayers of Cabeza de Vaca and his friends. Certainly, it was many hundreds. It could have been thousands. He wasn't concerned with such numbers in his report. But, in an official report to the king, he was concerned about truthfulness. Reporting these healings didn't get him any extra favor. There is no record that he did any healing work when he was back in Spain. One other thing. The placebo effect might account for a small percentage of those healings. In blind studies, percentages of placebo cures are not large. There is no way that the placebo effect could account for all of the healings that took place. It wasn't the placebo effect, it was the faith effect. It was the faith of Cabeza de Vaca and his friends that made the difference. Our faith is essential in accomplishing what God wants to do in our lives and in the world. How do we know that God insists on human faith being present for him to work? Look at these mysterious words in Mark 6, verses 1 through 6. They're about Jesus. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Did Jesus suddenly lose his power because people didn't believe in him? Not at all. Why didn't he use his power? Jesus did only what his father wanted him to do, what he saw his father doing. He says in John 5:19, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. 
Because there was no faith in his son right there in Jesus' hometown, God the Father in heaven refused to work in that place. What is unbelief? Unbelief is a form of faith, isn't it? When you don't believe one thing, it's because you believe something else. You may have convinced yourself that there is a body of evidence to support your belief, but the truth is that almost all of the evidence was acquired second or third hand from what you consider to be reliable sources. That is faith. Faith in the wrong thing can destroy you. God insists on working hand in hand with our faith. But when we want power, but we don't want God's involvement, there is another supernatural power waiting to work. It uses our faith as well. We're going to talk more about that in the future. I don't believe in professional faith healers. Anyone who announces that he or she has the gift of healing and wants crowds to come, well, automatically I question who they really are. I have no respect or belief in the word of faith teachers, evil servants of money who fly in private jets and perform on TV. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. However, I didn't always feel this way. Back about 1970, our family was living in the Chicago area. In our church was a man who was very ill with a degenerative disease. Medicine was not helping him, and he was in need of a miracle. At the time, there was a major woman faith healer operating in the country. Our friend learned that she was going to be at Notre Dame University, having one of her meetings, and he wanted to go. I had an open mind about all of it. Anything we could do that might help him, we wanted to do. So a small group of us took him to Notre Dame. I had never been to such a meeting. It was held in the enclosed stadium at the university. When we got there, thousands of people were pouring in, and many of them looked very unwell. On our way in, we met two elderly parents. With them was their beautiful daughter, a woman in her early thirties, and she was in a wheelchair. They were spending their life savings following this faith healer across the country, from one city to the next, desperately hoping that their daughter would be healed. I felt tremendous compassion for them. But spending your life savings this way? What dark responsibility would fall on that faith healer to influence people to do such a thing? We found our seats and the stadium went dark. A large choir began to sing that great old hymn, How Great Thou Art. Suddenly a single spotlight flashed on, illuminating a woman dressed all in white. Her arms were raised and she was twirling, dancing down one of the aisles. For all the world it sounded like the choir was singing to her. I had come with an open mind, but quickly it began closing. There was no way around it. I understood production values and the power of spectacle. This was the glorification of a woman through music and technology. Then the show got underway. A major element of it was this healer proving that she had spiritual power. This she did by what is called slaying people in the spirit. Groups were brought onto the platform. One by one she would touch them and they would fall into the waiting arms of catchers, knocked out cold with a Holy Spirit punch. We should remind listeners that you are a mentalist and a member of the Academy of Magical Arts at the world-famous Magic Castle in Hollywood. All the way back in 1970, you and Mom toured around the Midwest with a program called Beyond Reality. A mentalist is a person who uses trickery to make people think he has supernatural or psychic power. Using the subtle tricks of a magician, he appears to demonstrate that he can read minds, predict the future, move objects with thought alone, and much, much more. The difference was that in your program, you spent the first half demonstrating this fraudulent power. Then you would stop and tell the audience very clearly that everything they had seen was a trick. You had no special powers at all. Then you would talk about the real power found in Jesus Christ. That's right, and how gullible humans are, how easy it is to influence them. 
I have had people come up at the end of our program after hearing me say as clearly as possible that everything they saw was a trick, yet still they tell me, I know you said it was a trick, but when you were reading my mind, I felt you enter my head. My response was always the same. Whatever you felt had nothing to do with me. It was all your imagination. There is great psychological vulnerability when humans are in large crowds. A crowd mentality takes control, and under the right circumstances, a skilled speaker with a powerful personality can get them to believe and do almost anything. That has been proven over and over down through history. All of the people who came forward to stand on that woman's platform knew what was expected of them. She was going to knock them over with a touch of her hand. When everybody else is falling in front of thousands of people, you're going to do it too. And this was a crowd desperate to believe that she had real power. To be honest, as the show progressed, it was sickening, and I grew furious. I had no faith at all in the healings that supposedly took place, and there weren't any healings among the wheelchair folk. Nowhere in the Bible do you find the little psychological trick called slaying in the spirit. Jesus didn't do such demonstrations to prove his power. Neither did any of his apostles. When you see anyone slaying people in the spirit, that is living proof that you are seeing a spiritual wolf, a charlatan, a false teacher, any teacher or leader, healer or not, whose work focuses on the glory of himself or herself and not on Jesus Christ as a servant of darkness. And in fact, Dad, we had a friend of ours who said the most amusing thing was to try to watch multiple leaders try to slay each other in the spirit and then resist each other. It was like, a, like who's going to finally fall before the, the, the most dominant faith power? I'd love to see that on YouTube. It must be somewhere. <laughs> well, needless to say, at the end of that woman's show at Notre Dame, my friend had not been healed. But I had received an important education. Do people get healed in meetings like this? Yes, some do. But that's not because of the charlatan at the front collecting the big offering. It's strictly because of God's mercy and grace on poor suffering people, and this in spite of the wolf. After saying all of that, I need to tell our listeners about something that happened to me personally a few years ago that was very strange. When it comes to the miraculous and the supernatural, I look at things from a somewhat skeptical frame of mind. Not disbelieving or believing until there are enough facts. I believe that God does heal people miraculously. It does happen. But it's always been a rather theoretical belief for me. I pray for people who are sick, and I'm so glad when they are made well. However that happens, God does miracles, and many of them through medical science. As far as direct healing from prayer and the laying on of hands, it's taught in the New Testament. Jesus did it. His apostles did it. The argument that such signs ended with the apostolic period make no sense from the Bible. Certainly, such miraculous healings have happened since. It happened with Cabeza de Vaca. All of this is true, but once again, my belief was theoretical. I had never seen it happen until one night in a private home. When your mother and I moved to the mountains of California, we began attending a local church. There we met some wonderful people. They invited us to be part of a little fellowship group that met each month. About 12 or 15 people were in the group. We'd share a meal, have a short Bible study, and a few minutes of prayer together. I remember this. Uh, wasn't the leader of that group a retired pastor named Earl Keister? Yes. Earl was a widower. For many years, he had pastored an American Baptist church in Southern California. But when we met him, he had been retired from that position for quite a while. He and several members of his church had all moved up to the mountains at the same time. Those people were in this little fellowship group. As we got to know them, we began to hear a strange story. In the late 50s, early 1960s, 
Earl was pastoring this church when his wife came down with cancer. They had five small children, so you can imagine the agony this brought not only to their family, but to the entire congregation. Everyone was praying, and back then medicine couldn't do very much. Earl really didn't know anything about miraculous healing. It wasn't the subject taught at the seminary he had attended. In his desperation, he began to do serious research. He read, he prayed, he took courses at a local Christian graduate school. He began to believe that God was giving him the gift of healing. With real faith, over and over, he prayed for his wife. Well, she wasn't healed. About 1962, she died. Even though he had experienced such great sorrow and lack of success, Earl continued to believe that God had given him the gift of healing, the ability to pray for people, lay hands on them, and see them made well. At his little church, they began having Sunday evening healing services. It was never a large event. They didn't start a TV ministry. A few people would come, and there would be prayer. The people in our fellowship group who had been there said that uh, real healings took place. But it wasn't anything like you see with the big faith healers. Here's how Earl told me it worked. On Sunday afternoon, he would spend time in prayer for the evening service. While he was in prayer, very frequently he would get a pain in some part of his body. He felt that God was telling him that someone in the service would have a problem in that area. So during the service, he would stand up and ask, Is anyone having a problem here? And point to that place on his body. Apparently, many times it proved to be true. A person would come forward for prayer and would be healed. Now, all of this had happened many years in the past. By this time, we had been in his fellowship group for several years, and nothing like this had happened. My attitude was, I don't need to make a determination about all of that. He's such a good man who loves the Lord, so humble and giving. Whatever happened back then or what he thought happened, that's fine. It doesn't relate to now. So when he talked about it, I would just smile, nod, and say, wonderful. Then one fellowship group evening, something happened. After dinner, Earl said, the Lord told me this afternoon that somebody here is having trouble with their foot. He pointed to a specific place on his foot. If there's somebody like that, let us know so we can pray for you and you can get your healing. I looked around. Nobody responded. Suddenly I got a very odd feeling. About 30 years before, something had happened to me. Our family was living in the Chicago area. I was finishing my undergraduate degree and working full-time. One holiday, we took our kids to Starved Rock State Park. I vaguely remember this. We had a great time. There was a kid's play area with a little merry-go-round, the kind an adult has to spin while the kids ride on it, the kind that's totally illegal because they're unsafe now. <laughs> we were on it, and you were spinning it around when suddenly you stepped on a root that was sticking out of the ground. Yep. And instantly, I felt terrible pain. I thought I'd sprained my ankle. Actually, I had broken a bone in my foot, but I didn't know it. You know, we didn't have any money and no health insurance back then, so in spite of the pain, I didn't get it checked out. I just wrapped it with an ace bandage and hobbled on it. It hurt for months, but finally it got better. However, my foot was never the same. It didn't bother me unless I walked for some distance on rough ground. Then it would really hurt in the place of the break. Thankfully, I'm a writer. We work in offices, so I didn't have to do a lot of walking. I would go for weeks without any pain at all, but eventually it would come back, and I did have to be careful about the kind of shoes I wore. That night, Earl Keister pointed to his foot in the exact place where I had experienced pain for 30 years 
even though I wasn't experiencing it at that moment. My first thought was, okay, this is crazy. Could he be talking about me? What am I going to do about this? No one else stepped forward, so rather sheepishly I said, well, I'd had trouble there. I was a little embarrassed as he prayed for my foot in Jesus' name. How much faith did I have? Not a bit more than a mustard seed. I had acknowledged the problem and accepted the prayer, that's all. But almost my first thoughts afterward were, what am I going to do when this doesn't work and I still have the pain? I'll just be very quiet and hope he doesn't ask about it. He thinks he's got the gift of healing and I don't want to hurt his feelings. So much for my faith. (laughs) Well, that was over 12 years ago. The pain has never returned. Something happened, and I guarantee it wasn't caused by the placebo effect. Nothing like that ever happened again in that fellowship group. The odd thing, one of our friends in that group had been having serious problems with his feet for years. Over and over we had prayed for him, but the healing came to me. I would have been happy for him to get it instead. Earl Keister and several other members of that little fellowship group are in heaven now. We rely on modern medicine, and we should. It's one of God's gifts to us. In the dark time ahead, we may very well get to the point where modern medicine is no longer available or effective. At that time, we need to understand how to distinguish the source of supernatural healings. So forget the big showy faith healers. In the dark time ahead, they will be servants of evil, as they are now. And they will do amazing things. Desperate people will be healed. But when God chooses to give that gift, it will come because he wants to bring glory to his son Jesus. I'm convinced it will come to humble people like Earl Keister. It won't be something they can control and use whenever they want. It will come in specific cases in humble circumstances when God chooses to give it. It didn't come when Earl prayed so fervently for his wife. How much faith will you need? At one point, Jesus stood in front of a man with a withered hand. He was having one of his regular confrontations with the Pharisees about healing people on the Sabbath. He told the man to stretch out his withered hand. As he stretched it out, it was healed. Now, Jesus could have healed his hand while it dangled beside him, but he demanded that the man take the tiny step of obedience and faith and reach out. If he had refused to do that, I'm sure he wouldn't have been healed. If I had remained silent that evening, my foot would still be in pain. If God gives the gift of healing, it will come for a specific case. You will get the overwhelming sense that you must pray for a person, and you will know exactly what to say when you do. But we need to say that there is a much deeper step of faith than this, and all those who follow Jesus are called to it. It is the willingness to say to God, Your will be done, even if it is not what I am praying for so desperately right now. Obviously, Earl Keister came to that place with his wife. After her death, he went forward seeing other people healed, but not the one he loved most in this world. What should we look for to prove that any supernatural manifestation is really from God? The first evidence of real spiritual power that comes from heaven is a deep love for Jesus Christ and a desire to bring glory to his name. If that is not present, no matter what supernatural power is being displayed, it will be false. The second evidence is humility. I don't mean the chest-beating public kind. I mean the kind that has humbled itself beneath the mighty hand of God. Usually that kind of humility is the result of suffering. 
The third evidence is compassion that comes from a broken heart, a heart that knows the true meaning of repentance and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. If these are not present, no matter what the miracle might be, even if you see a person raised from the dead, do not follow the one who has done it. Let's conclude with another story. It's a strange case that happened in 1982 in Pakistan. It was originally examined and reported by Dr. Rex Gardner, who was a researcher and physician at Sunderland District General Hospital in England, and it is recounted in Michael Talbot's book, The Holographic Universe. In 1982, a British physician was working in Pakistan. Her name was Ruth Coggan. One day, as she was treating patients, a woman named Camro came to her for help. She was 35 years old and 8 months pregnant. For most of her pregnancy, she had been experiencing bleeding and frequent pain in her abdomen. It was clear to Dr. Coggan that something was very wrong. She told Camro to go to a hospital right away. Well, the woman didn't want to do that, so she didn't do it. But a couple of days later, she had no choice. The bleeding had greatly intensified. Coggan examined her again. She had lost a huge amount of blood, and her feet and abdomen were dangerously swollen. The next day in the hospital, there was an episode of bleeding that was even worse. There was no choice but to remove the baby immediately by cesarean section. When Camro's uterus was opened, a large amount of dark blood flooded out and continued flowing. It was clear to Dr. Coggan that the woman's body had no clotting ability. After the baby was delivered, there were deep pools of blood filling the bed and the incision was still flowing. The situation was desperate. If something wasn't done immediately, Camro would die. Coggan managed to find two pints of blood for a transfusion, but it wasn't nearly enough to replace the huge amount that had been lost. With that, all options were exhausted. Well, all but one. Prayer. Here is what Dr. Coggan wrote in her journal. We prayed with the patient after explaining to her about Jesus, in whose name we had prayed for her before the operation, and who was a great healer. I also told her that we were not going to worry. I had seen Jesus heal this condition before and was sure he was going to heal her. After praying, there was nothing to do but wait. Well, Camero kept on bleeding. But very strangely, her general condition didn't get any worse. It stabilized. Dr. Coggan reported that she visited the patient that evening and prayed for her again. The bleeding continued just as heavy as before, but the woman didn't seem affected by it. Forty-eight hours after the surgery, the blood started clotting and she began a full recovery. Ten days later, Camero and her baby girl went home. Dr. Coggan reported that though she had no way of measuring how much blood had been lost during the surgery and afterward, she was certain that it was more than Camero had in her whole body. So if you don't believe in Jesus and his ability to heal, this presents a serious problem for you. Humans can't produce blood fast enough to replace such a catastrophic loss. If we could, nobody would ever bleed to death. So where did Camero's blood come from with such incredible speed? The doctors who examined the case had only one answer. Her new blood came out of thin air. Jesus really is the most powerful healer in the universe because he is the creator, the Son of God. And he loves you more than you can ever imagine. He loved you enough to die for you to take away the real disease that has been killing you from the moment you were born, the disease called sin. But to be healed of that, you have to ask him to forgive your sins and take them away. You have to believe in Him and trust Him. In the next episode, we'll talk about miraculous healing that comes from the powers of darkness. 
Yes, they can heal too, but always there is a steep price to be paid. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the link with your friends. Also leave a review on iTunes. It would be greatly appreciated. If you have questions or would like to discuss all of this with us, please write to colemanluck at gmail.com. Until next time, remember, history had a beginning and it will have an end. Are you ready?